we right now are in a series uh, called The Waters in Which We Swim. And, and basically looking at culturally, what, what, what's happening around us culturally and what is the church's response or what is a gospel response to those things. And, and what we're going to be talking about tonight is actually going to be politics. And, and this has been one that um, quite honestly has been very, very difficult, I think, for me just to try to to study things and, and, and work my, my brain around how can I teach this in a gospel-centered way, but at the same time, I know that there are people in this room that are all over the spectrum as far as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a staunch Republican, I am a Democrat. Um, that's the beauty of the church. It really is. There's not too many organizations in the world where you can have Republicans and Democrats in our society that can get together and hang out and have a good time and invite each other over to each other's houses, and it's a beautiful thing. And so I'm glad that we uh, have that opportunity. And I think part of it, honestly, and, and, and I don't want this to be offensive to some of you if you don't even agree with this, but I think why I don't get too involved in politics is honestly because of white privilege. Like, I, it just doesn't affect me as a white, middle-class American man um, in a lot of ways. And so I just kind of keep going and keep doing my thing. And I keep preaching the gospel because I believe that the gospel is the hope of the world, not politics, which we're going to talk about. Um, and hopefully... Jesus says the same thing. Um, hopefully I can get you to that, that point as well. And so this is, has, has been difficult, and it's been very eye-opening for me uh, as well as, as I've been getting into this and digging into this. And so I want to start off by showing, we're gonna be, I'm going to play a video. Uh, it's from a, a pastor down in Dallas, Texas. His name is Matt Chandler. He is the president of Acts 29, which is a church planning network that uh, I am a part of. So I had to go through a church planning assessment and all that stuff before getting here. So he's the, he's the president of that organization. And he was actually interviewed by um, Vice News, which is um, uh, an HBO news uh, series column. And uh, and I think the reporter asked some really good questions about the political climate and religious climate of right now, of where are we and, and what's this thing with Trump and why did so many evangelicals vote for him and all that stuff. And, and I, tonight, listen, tonight I'm not talking policy. I'm not promoting anybody. Um, it's the furthest thing from that. But I think that Matt Chandler does a very good job of answering some of these questions. And so um, just keep in mind, this is Dallas, Texas, okay? Um, and and uh, they use language a little different uh, differently than we do. Um, and it's a red state. I mean, it's, so I think it's always been a red state. I don't know uh, politically when it hasn't ever been. One time it has been, you said? Oh, never. Okay, okay, I'm going to keep going. All right. Everyone's like, no, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. All right, I, I don't. Um, so uh, anyways, I'm gonna, we're going to play the video. It's only four minutes long, uh, but I think there's some really good good dialogue that happens between um, Matt and uh, the interviewer here. So let me just get that, get that going. Oh, that was my fault. We both clicked at the same time. We spoke to Matt Chandler, who is considered a rising star among young pastors, about how evangelicalism is changing in today's political environment. Can we agree that President Trump isn't of the utmost moral character? Absolutely. Like, are people arguing other than that? So this is what I want to ask you. To me, evangelicals prioritize morality, being Christ-like, and yet they played a huge part in getting him elected. Yeah. How did that happen? What, what did they like about it? Uh, I think people are frightened. Um, I, th I think they're frightened at the speed at which things are changing culturally. Yeah. Uh, and so I think they begin to grasp for, for something that might help. 
the, the Obama presidency, great man, some of his policies and some of the ways he rolled out his policies um, really, really scared evangelicals. Yeah. And without any kind of real help from pastors and ministers to help their people understand, the, the news media just whipped us into a frenzy yeah. and, and made people feel desperate. Yeah. What are the challenges today in keeping young people engaged here? My experience with the de-churched, that's what I would call them, the, those who grew up in church and have left, is that it's a sense of hypocrisy that they picked up on, uh, a kind of cowardice among the church to address things that are serious and significant pains of our day. So whether that be um, domestic violence, what the church has been just painfully quiet on, uh, or uh, even things like racial reconciliation, which man, you step into those spaces, you're gonna draw a lot of flack from the evangelical world. But I think especially around um, topics like homosexuality, and we're, we're quick to say it's a sin, and you may understand, which I'm not gonna disagree that, that I would I would think from the scriptures that that's um, not what ultimately God intends, but to pretend like that we're not talking about human beings with souls um, who sometimes are deeply conflicted, it's just a great error. And to be right the wrong way is to be wrong. How do you think Democrats and media have isolated evangelicals and where could they do better to be more inclusive? I think some of the blind spots on the left is that the left, specifically city left, feels like the country is more progressive than it actually is. And the more it presses, the more it makes um, conservatives dig in their heels. And the bathroom bill had passed, and I'm telling you, people were terrified by that bathroom bill. More than anything else, the thought that their children were gonna be in a bathroom um, with the opposite sex, right? And, and I know all the arguments around that, um, but, but I'm using the language that, that I think would make sense to most conservatives. That, that, that made them go, whoever, whoever the opposition is to that, I'm voting for. And then they lost their soul in it, many of them did. How do you think the evangelical community will be different in 10 years versus 10 years ago? Golly. Well, first, just the whole concept of what evangelicalism is is difficult right Very now. Very confusing. It is such a junk drawer. For some people, evangelicalism now is like a political party, uh, divorced from its, you know, theological roots. Um, I, I think you're gonna see what we've already seen probably three or four times in Christian history. There are going to be those um, that try to reach the world by becoming like the world. And then there are gonna be those that try to, by the grace of God, hold fast to orthodox Christian faith um, in a way that's compassionate and kind, and they're gonna have to weather the backlash of all the wrong that's been done in the name of Jesus the last 50 years. Okay, um, so again, that's 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 that. That was uh, Chandler talking about. There's a couple things that he said that are going to be highlighted in this in this sermon, um, as far as well, what's the Bible have to say about politics? What, what does it say about our involvement with um, a, a position or a leader that I don't agree with uh, politically? What what does it speak into that? And then just culturally, how do we respond? Because um, I, I, there's a really good diagram that Pastor Cor came up with that, that we're going to be looking at at the end. And I, I love the way that Pastor Matt worded that of to be right the wrong way is to be wrong. 
And I think as, as Christians or evangelicalism, whatever you want to put yourself and label yourself as, it doesn't matter to me, but um, we, we have done a very poor job of being able to have open, honest discussion with people without Bible-thumping them, right, and just crushing them over the head with our theology. Um, and so I want, to, I want to talk about that. So again, we've already talked about, about where we're going and what's going on. So this is the narrative. And so every week we have a narrative, whether it was truth or identity, and the narrative is, if, if my politician was in office, right, everything would be fixed. We, we just got to get my politician in office. And there's been, I mean, how many times already, right, have you been hearing that, right, 2020 is going to be hands down the most important election of our lifetime? And that has been said, I think, every election. And so we've got to be careful with just saying and putting all of our hope in, in politics, right? And putting all our eggs in one basket, unless that basket is King Jesus, who, as we've seen in the history narrative, he already holds all the eggs. That's, this is a really, this is a bad analogy. That's not going anywhere, okay? But he's, he's seated on his throne, and he's in charge, and he's in control, and he knows exactly what's happening. So uh, I want to I start off by just um, talking about, is this even true, okay? Is this where our culture even is on this spectrum, right? Are we really that divided? And, and so the, the point tonight is not to bring more division. Wow, I didn't realize how crazy those people were, how crazy this guy is. I, I, I hope this should be unifying under the banner of Jesus Christ, and that's it. And so um, one, one article, The Atlantic, says, uh, in these conditions, democracy des- devolves, uh, into a zero-sum competition, one in which parties succeeded by stoking voters' fears and appealing to their ugliest us-versus-them instincts. Americans on both the left and the right now view their political opponents not as fellow Americans with differing views, but as enemies to be vanquished. And I think that sums up a lot, um, if, if you've seen this. And I, I actually had a friend um, on Facebook, a, a guy who would definitely claim as a non-Christian, where he just said, we should make it a law that politicians can only talk about the good things they're going to do and not the negative things and how bad this person is. And I was like, yeah, I, I'd vote yes on that one, right? I just, it's so amazing how, how hate-filled some of these messages are, and, and we got to be careful with that. In the Twin Cities, there was a poll that uh, it's really hard to read. It's, it's, it's a pointless graph, I apologize. But 33% uh, say that they are uh, conservative, 32% say they're moderate, and then 30% say they're liberal, and 7% say, yeah, I'm not really sure where I'm at. Right? That's the Twin Cities. That was a poll that was taken, right? That You talk about division. That's division. That says almost as evenly divided as you could possibly cut a pie, one-third, 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 um, and, and then 7%, which doesn't, the math doesn't add up there, but you know what I mean? That's that's the Twin Cities. Um, so when I when I first started working on this sermon, I thought, why are we where we are right now? Right? What happened politically within Christianity in our society? And I mean, I went back. Right? I went back to, to 1492 when Christopher Columbus brings Catholicism over to this continent. And what did that look like? And what happened? I started digging in, and then I, I got to about the uh, the 1770s, and I had way too much content. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, we're not going to go there. I'm, people will just be asleep. Uh, that's no good." Um, but there are a couple things that I want to bring up about that. Okay, so so backing up, right, the the Catholics were here from from Spain, Spanish influence in, in South America, and then the French uh, Catholics came over in North America. And then you have the Protestants that come over, right? The pilgrims come over, and in that boat, this is after the Reformation. 
And so on those boats, there are Baptists, there are Puritans, there are Presbyterians, there are, you name it, right? They, they are on that boat because that, those divisions had already happened over in Europe. And so they come over here, but the problem is there was at that time still no such thing as separation of church and state. Okay, so, so the, the church ran the state. So if you disagreed with how we worship God, then you go to jail. At least if you live in my country, in my little, my little town or my, my providence or my uh, colony. That's the word I'm looking for, right? And if you live in this space, you need to obey by my rules. That's how this is going to work. And if not, then you're going to get in trouble or you're going to be kicked out of the community. And that's exactly, the, the churches just ran as like little gangs because they didn't know how else to, to do this. Well, then a guy comes along, and I've talked about him before, and we talked about the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Uh, his name is Roger Williams. And he ends up, for the first time really in history, writing a book that has to deal with the separation of church and state. And he says the state cannot legislate Christianity. You can't do that. Uh, and so when we talked about the Ten Commandments, he said that the state can put into play the last bottom six because that has to do with human-to-human relationships. But it has, but he, a state cannot enforce the first four, which have to do with man's relationship with God, okay? So you shall have no other gods before me. Well, how do you enforce that? If there's a different religion that doesn't say that's that God, then, then they go to jail? No, he says, no, you, you can't do that. And I, he has a couple quotes here that I... I absolutely love, um, he says this, he says, christening makes not Christians, right? And that sums it up. You cannot force somebody to be a Christian by making them follow rules, right? You can, just because you enforce morality doesn't make people moral, right? That was his whole argument, that it has to be from the heart. And another, another one is he says, forced religion stinks in the nostrils of God, <laughs> right? And, and he got in trouble for this, and his followers got in trouble. There's a woman who, Ann Hutchinson, maybe you've heard of her. She starts a little Bible study. She starts teaching people that, that we live under grace, not under law. But then the city officials heard that she was teaching that we weren't under the law, and they said, no, 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 they, people need to obey the laws. And she's like, no, I'm not talking about city laws. I'm talking about God's law. Like we're, it's, we're, we're under Jesus right now. And they end up kicking her and her entire family out of the city, and they get murdered by Native Americans. And then the magistrates that are in charge of the city are like, well, clearly God, God wanted this. This is God-ordained, right? That's, that's the culture of what's happening, okay? And this guy and these people are now finally saying, no, there should be a separation of the church and state. We can't force this on people. And it may seem like a novel idea, and maybe it is in the United States and at least in Western cultures, um, but some guy named King David, uh, who was the second king of Israel thousands of years before uh, Roger Williams showed up, said this in Psalm 51. He's confessing his sin. His heart is broken over the sin that he is caught in. And he says this, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, right? Time out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. King David, you're saying this. You, you probably have the entire uh, Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. And how many times in there does it say that if you've sinned, you need to, to offer a sacrifice and, and make an atonement for your sin, a blood atonement? And yet now the king of Israel is saying, you, you, you don't delight in that. Why? Verse 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Right? You, you can't force somebody to do something, and then therefore it, it connects with the heart. It just doesn't work that way. I can't just say the right words. I can't just pray a prayer, and therefore now I'm a Christian. 
It needs to be from the heart. And that's exactly what King David is talking about. And, and I think that's what a lot of Christians throughout the centuries have been saying. But unfortunately, we get lumped into a category that says, oh, we need to legislate, legislate morality. Um, and that's, that's not the case. Um, all right. I, I, my outline is, is pretty simple. I, if you have it, it was, you know, Peter's view on the church and Paul's view on the church. And then Ben was kind of joking. Isn't it Peter, Paul, and Mary? Because I said Peter, Paul, and Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll use that one. But um, that's, anyways. Uh, we're going to start with Paul. Um, Paul's view on politics and or Rome. Okay, so, so Rome in, in Paul's day, the Apostle Paul, is his first century uh, in Israel, or in, uh, excuse me, in Jerusalem, and he, and he travels around and he gets to Rome um, and, and is eventually executed by Rome. Um, but what are his politics regarding what it means to be under the authority? And so Rome, uh, quick history lesson, sorry, I, I just have to do this. I want to paint that picture, okay? Rome is occupying Israel, but what they would do is they would set up kind of regents, right? So Herod the Great and all these people, the Tetrarchs and all these different people, they would be leaders over Israel, okay? But they were Roman rulers, right, that was overseeing Israel, Israelite people. So underneath Rome, you could keep your culture. You could keep your gods, you could keep your customs, you could do those things, but you paid um, taxes and you did everything to Caesar, Right? He was your king and God. As long as you could do both, then, then this will work, right? And they would kind of force their culture a little bit on people by that way. But, so they're, they're underneath Roman occupation. But yet that is their, who their, their, their king is, is Caesar uh, in this, at, this, at this point. Okay, so what was interesting is when I start studying Paul, which is a difficult undertaking looking at politics because Paul writes you know, approximately half of our New Testament. And that's which is a lot. And then by studying all of that, it's boiled down to one paragraph. That's the only thing that Paul has to say about Rome. Why is that? Why does Paul only say one thing? Is it because he's afraid? No. Well, you can study Paul, right? He's constantly running away from, from what the church or the, the Rome's gonna do this to me, they're gonna beat me, they're gonna imprison me, they're gonna kill me. And he said, and his his response is for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? He's not afraid of the politics involved here. He's not afraid of losing his life. He's not afraid of being beaten, right? So he, he doesn't talk about it because, and as, as I was reading, because they, he doesn't want to give credence. He doesn't want to even give them the writing. He never names kings or people. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even put their names in the book. I'd be saying, listen, they're, they're important, but, but they're not as important as what I'm actually writing about. And that is significant. So I want to look at the paragraph, and this, this has come up even in recent news. So I want to read this. Romans chapter 13, he says this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And the, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, unfortunately, this passage has been used by probably every every politician this side of the cross, right? They, they just love throwing this passage out there, right? Of, hey, listen, man, I, I'm in office, but I'm only in office because God wants me here. Well, that's terrible because this verse can be applied to every governing authority that's ever lived on the face of the earth, right? So we can't just say that God does this, right? He used, and if you remember, I think it was last week, looking at Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus and Xerxes, these are all pagan kings, that God uses in order to help or even punish his own people. So they're bending at the will of a sovereign God. 
right? So we can't just say, we can't just pull this verse out when the person we want in office is elected. We can't do that. We have to be able to pull this verse out when everyone and anyone is elected because that's what God said. Now, this was used, and, I, and I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, we're not, I'm not a, I'm not, geez, I'm not pulling political lines here. Okay, I'm not trying to skirt anything here, but this is what happened recently. If, if you remember when it was in the news a lot recently when the children, uh, immigrants were being separated from, or refugees were being separated from their parents, right? Their parents were coming over illegally, so we separate the kids all over the news. And then Jeff Sessions comes up, and uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal, but he says this, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear, wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Now, is Jeff wrong in that quote? The answer is no. The answer is that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. But there was also a lot that Paul didn't say in that passage that he says everywhere else in whatever he's writing. Okay, so what else does the Apostle Paul say? Actually, before I get there, I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a quote here in a minute. But, but I want to just talk about this for a minute. And I, and I will emphatically say this, that it is never okay for politicians to use the Bible to make their point. Think, just think about this. Think about how, how weird that is. Right? Think about it if me, as a pastor, if we flipped this role. right? And so for me, I'm up here as a pastor preaching, and for me, hey, to make my point, you know what I'm going to do? Um, in Pennsylvania, and I looked up just ridiculous laws today, but in, one, in Pennsylvania, apparently it is illegal to um, fish with dynamite, which is, that's a, okay, I'm cool with that law, all right? What was the point of that, right? So if I'm up here, hey, listen, Christians, we need to be on the forefront of, of uh, humanitarian things and, 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 our, and our creation and, and things. We need to be on the forefront of this. And you know why? Because in the state of Pennsylvania, it is illegal to use dynamite to fish. Because why? It's so destructive and it kills the environment. That would be ludicrous. And yet here we are, we have politicians that are using scripture to prove their point. Listen, if, if, if Jeff believes this and believes this is the authority of God's word, great. But it shouldn't be used interchangeably. It shouldn't be used as a club to make my purpose. Because what he's now saying here, uh, now I'm gonna get too political. Now we're not gonna do that. We're gonna move on here. This is the quote here though, okay? This is what the apostle Paul says. Not that the apostle Paul, Douglas Moo. He's not the apostle Paul. Douglas Moo says this. He's a, an author that, that wrote a book on Romans. And so this is what he says, though. What does it mean to submit to these authorities? This word usually commands Christians to recognize that, stand in a certain, that they stand in a certain hierarchy to others. When applied to rulers, then, submit means to recognize that a hierarchy exists and that we stand under the rules in that hierarchy. Normally, therefore, submission meant that we are to obey what they say. And if we end it there, right, every politician that, that wants to use that verse is like, yeah, man, praise Jesus. This is great. I can say what I want, and they have to obey. That's what Paul says. Well, in all of Paul's hierarchical structures, however, the uppermost authority, though, is not always mentioned. It's God. He stands at the top of all of our hierarchies. What this means is that we must always submit to those over us in light of our ultimate submission to God. In certain cases, this might mean that we will disobey the authority immediately over us in order to obey the ultimate authority. 
And we, and we could wind, wind back the clock, and this is really where my study started going initially, and I wasn't planning on saying this, but here I go anyways, was really looking at how did people use those verses to promote slavery in the United States uh, in the 16, 17, 1800s, right? And to look at that and say there were people that were using this kind of thinking to promote slavery, the dehumanization of a, of a people group because of what they think the Bible teaches and when the church was quiet on that subject, right? And they should have done something about it. And I, and I pray to God that if there are, are cases and things like that, I, I hope that I am at least open enough and willing enough to be able to talk about it and to maybe disobey a governing authority if it needs that. Uh, or as my, as my friend uh, Tyler St. Clair, he's a pastor in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, he says, we worship the lamb of God, not some donkey or elephant. Right, Dad? I said, Dad, That'll preach. Well, I'm, it is literally preaching right now, but it's, um, that's, that's how it is. That our, our, our loyalty shouldn't be to a donkey, to a political party or an elephant. It should be to the, the slain lamb of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who's seated on his throne. That's where our lines should land. So Peter's view on politics of Rome, and I would love to get into what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says, honor the emperor, uh, because he talks about who is the emperor. His emperor at the time is Nero. Nero had recently burned the city of Rome to the ground and blamed it on the Christians, was capturing Christians and using them as candles, actual candles for his dinner parties, burning them alive, All right? And then he says, honor the emperor, okay? We're not gonna go there, to be continued, because next in a couple months, we're actually gonna be preaching through First Peter, so I don't wanna like give everything away. Um, but what I do wanna do is I wanna look at what Peter does, is there ever a time, do we ever have an example of what Douglas Moo just explained of people disobeying the authorities in order to promote Jesus? And the answer is yes. Yes, Peter does this uh, quite clearly. Peter says this, and this is Acts chapter five. It says, and the high priest and all of his associates who are members of the party of the Sadducees, okay, that is significant. If it's just the high priest, no big deal. You're just my religious authority, okay? But but now the Sadducees, they're a political party. All right, there were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there's a couple others, Zealots, the Herodians, which we'll talk about in a minute here. But the Sadducees were, were Jews that believed most of their scriptures, but they, they, believed, they left out parts so they could buddy-buddy up with the Romans, okay? They were uh, elected officials that were paid by Rome, okay? So this is a political party, and they get together, and it says that they were filled with jealousy at what Peter was preaching in the temple because there were so many people coming around. They were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail, all right, in the Roman jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out and said, go, go stand in the temple courts. Go do exactly what you were just doing and tell the people all about this new life. Now go tell, tell them again. I know you just got arrested for it. Go do it again. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. And when the high priest and the associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, that is now the religious kind of political governing body of the Jews, and the full assembly of the elders of Israel and sent to the jail for the apostles, right? They're gonna try them now here on a bigger level. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find him there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked 
with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard, okay, this would be like the captain of a militia, because it's not the Roman army, all right, this would be like the Jewish captain of the guard, a militia, if you will, of the temple guard, and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what might this lead to. Then someone came to them and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went to his officers and brought the apostles, and they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in to made appear before the Sanhedrin and to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. That's, that's Jesus' name. Yet you, have been, uh, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. See that they won't even say his name? His name, this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. I mean, that's black and white. And the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, right? They, they blatantly disobey the governing body in order that they might obey God. We must obey God rather than human beings. Anytime, any law that comes into play that says you must do this, right? If there's a law that says you're no longer allowed to meet as a church, as a body of believers, guess what? We're gonna do it. That's on record because that's what we're called to do. All right. That's Peter. What about Jesus? What did Jesus say about all this? In Matthew chapter 22, again, Jesus doesn't really bring this up a whole lot. But at one point, he's confronted, and, and some people try to, try to trap him. And the Pharisees went out uh, and laid plans to trap him. Okay, So the Pharisees, they would be the really religious group of people that want to get all the Jews to abide by their rules, by, by their system, Okay, that if you live this way, then you will be loved by God. Okay? The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, now this is, you want to talk like bipartisan uh, unity here. You've got the, the religious people who say, we want, to, we want to live this way in order that, that God will love Israel again. And the Herodians, by their name, they are the supporting political party of Jews that is in favor of Herod being their king. Okay, that is extreme opposite as you can get. And they, they send each other together to try to trick Jesus. Okay, they're going to they're trap him here. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not. It's interesting, again, I'm not going to get into the history of this, but the imperial tax here is a small little tax. There could have been a lot of other taxes they would have said. Imperial tax, though, was what, what you paid, what like kind of Caesar's salary, if you will. Okay, It was a small uh, fee that you would pay as, an, as a tax to Caesar or not. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, show me. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought it to him, a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? So they give him this coin. 
All right, this is the silver denarius of Tiberius, head of Tiberius, with a Latin inscription that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, so on this coin, you now have a political leader connecting himself with the divine. All right, kind of, kind of maybe what, what some people still do. I'm going to connect myself with what God is saying in the Bible. And that's what Tiberius is doing here on this inscription. Son of the divine Augustus, there's something about who I am and my position that makes me divine. So Jesus says, or they say, Caesar's. Whose image is on the, whose, whose image and in, in inscription? Caesar's, they reply. Then he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, okay? The give back here is, is rendered really, give him back what, what you owe him. Okay, give him back what, what is due him, right? He, he has a tax, so just give him that money. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but then here, and to God, and, and the NIV kind of leaves the word out here, it's the word give again, but it's, it's actually a gift. And you gift to God what is God's. All right, so he, he's saying, hey, listen, Caesar has a tax, you give him the tax. He's not your king, but God is. God is on his throne. So, so Jesus does something very interesting here. He doesn't say, hey, this is like a really simple problem, right? Just pay your taxes, do your thing, and love, love, love God, because there would have been some conflict of interest there, right? So he's not saying this is just some simple thing, even though God is really smart and he answers it in this way, right? Because when they heard this, heard this they were amazed. So they, 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 uh, they left him and went away. But then at the same time, Jesus doesn't cause division here, right? If Jesus in this moment would have said, it's not our duty as Christians to pay tax. <laughs> it would be a very different culture, at least that we're swimming in right now. He doesn't say that. He says that they're a governing authority. You pay them what they're due. You pay them their tax. But the God, you give God what's God's. That's what Jesus has to say about it. Okay, I want to um, talk about a, a diagram. There's a, a Venn diagram. I don't know if you know what a, what a Venn diagram is. So I, there's a Venn diagram of a Venn diagram, so you know what a Venn diagram is. So on the, on the left side there, it's, it's different. On, or on the right side, it's different, but in the middle, there's, there's sameness, okay? And so you can put two different things on each side of this, and the middle part, the overlapping section, is where it's the same, okay? Um, so I, I did this this morning in PowerPoint, and uh, trying to make graphics in PowerPoint is a waste of time, and I spent way too much time trying to do it, and I thought, whatever, I'm going to explain my, my Venn diagram here, okay? So, so here you have, the, on, the, on the left, is going to be the, the grand old party, right? The Republican Party. And, and, and it doesn't matter where you fit. That's just one of, the, one of the options. The other side is the National Democratic Committee. And, and, and we can look at these two parties. And I'm only going to stick with two. I know that there could be independence or maybe, you know, legalized marijuana in here. I don't know. But, but whatever it is to say there's, there's two major parties that we're seeing here. And, and, and just for simplicity. Um, and we can take that Venn diagram. And you might say, man, there might be, at least in some situations, where those overlap uh, even more, or maybe, ah, you, I think you overlapped them a little bit too much, right? But there are some areas where there is bipartisanship, where, where Democrats and Republicans would say, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that, or, or whatever, whatever that issue may be. They would say, yes, there, there is some, some overlap when it comes to our politics. Now, those are our political circles. But what I think what Scripture teaches over and over again, and what Jesus has to say over and over again about the kingdom of God, and how does that overlap? Well, I think it goes differently. It's not, right? Not every Republican is an evangelical or, or, or not every Democrat is an evangelical, right? It's not the way this works. And as Pastor Matt said in that video, right, evangelicalism has come to mean some kind of political party, 
And that's not the case. What we should be saying is we're part of the kingdom of God. And there are certain things that we do, and as we vote, and listen, praise God, and I mean this, okay? Don't, don't, I, I am so thankful that I live in the United States of America. So don't, don't hear that I'm like anti-government or I'm anti our, our constitution or anything like that. I am so grateful that I have the ability and freedom to be able to vote. I have that right, and you do too. And that's a good thing to be able to, uh, to use, okay? But as I say, am I kingdom-minded, and are there certain aspects of my life that, that may be going to the, the Democratic side of that and, or, or Republican side of that? And I want to be able to take what it is that I believe based on Scripture and then apply that to politics, all right? So which of these occupy your thinking? Is it the Republican Party? Is it any political party? Or is it the kingdom of God? Does that occupy the majority of your thinking, of your actions, of your values, of relationships, etc.? Which one is the most dominant? Is it a political party that Jesus wouldn't want? And I don't mean that in the sense of, is it a political party uh, because one of them is more Christian or than the other? I can't say that. And neither can you. And we'll debate this all night long, but we're not going to. Because what I do believe is that Jesus isn't part of a Republican or a Democratic party. He's the King of Kings, he's Lord of Lords, and he's seated on his throne. I've said that many times tonight. So will you stand firm to your political party or will you yield to the kingdom of God? And I will firmly state, at least from this pulpit, that we will never be party, policy, or candidate specific. It's not going to happen. And you might be really passionate about something. Great. Be passionate about that. I will encourage you to be passionate about that. But it's got no place in the pulpit of Jesus. It's got no place coming from his scriptures. It's not going to happen. Unless that governing authority says do something other than what scripture teaches, then you better believe I'll be up here preaching against that. But I can, I can, I can assure you that that, that won't happen. Now, I want to highlight the groups of people where, where we might be. Maybe you're right there in the middle where you say, yeah, some, some things I vote Democratic, some things I vote Republican. Some of you might be, no, I'm, I'm a Democrat, but I'm first and foremost part of the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm a believer, and this is, this is where my hope is. And you might be a Republican, and, and you might look at each other and say, that's an oxymoron. You can't, you can't be a Democrat and a Christian. You can't be a Republican and a Christian. Well, I'm telling you, you can be. And I want you to, I want to encourage those of you that are in there, that you would say, man, I, I, I really want the kingdom of God, but I also have these, these political values that are really important. Good. I want to encourage you to lead and lead in hope because of, again, what, what Pastor Matt said, right? To, to be right the wrong way is to be wrong. And we have done this poorly. And I want us to lead as a, as a culture, as a church, as a community that can talk about very divisive things, culturally speaking, and at the end of the day, say, man, isn't Jesus good? Isn't it great that someday he's just going to fix this all? Because this is not working. So I want to encourage you in that, that you have God first, party second. And then we have good communication about those things. And the, and the phrase that we use is that matter and manner matter. That we don't have to compromise on our political beliefs, but yet we can be respectful to other people, especially when we're in the kingdom of God. I want to just close by reading um, three different quotes from um, three different people. Um, one is, is uh, Tim Keller says this, to enter a culture 
Another main task to discern is dominant worldviews or belief systems because contextualized gospel ministry should affirm beliefs of the culture whenever it can be done with integrity, okay? So just going out beyond these walls and saying, yeah, this is what culture upholds. This is a value that they hold. Isn't that good? Can't we see that? Our criticism of the culture will have no power to persuade unless it is based on something that we can affirm, right? That overlapping area. We can affirm this in the beliefs and values of that culture. Uh, Brian Freeman, one of our elders at Hope Community Church, said this, in our political movement, those who think differently or vote differently are viewed as the enemy, someone uh, to be beaten and shown to be wrong and misguided. He's a lawyer, by the way. But the gospel would say we are to love our neighbors, extend grace, be long-suffering, and turn the other cheek. We as the church have a huge opportunity to model gospel civility, if that's a thing. To me, that means intellectual humility, willingness to admit that we don't know all of the answers or how politics ought to work. That heart posture seems sorely lacking in our discourse and way of relating to others in this area. We have a real chance to be countercultural for Jesus here. And then finally, uh, this is uh, Jen Wilkin. She says this, as I write, I'm at the end of a week full of historic news headlines. Issues on race, gender, sexuality, religion, and politics have all erected into chaos at the same time. Leaders have fallen, laws have been overturned, citizens have practiced civil disobedience, terrorism has inscribed its message in blood across three continents, and social media wants desperately to convince me that this time it is serious, that the sky is really falling. I remember other weeks like this, the anxiety and the alarm they bred in me, the gut-ripping fear, the raging of the nations can be navigated only by keeping a fixed point of view, the Lord God, seated on his throne. That fixed point has been my meditation this week for the sake of writing this book and the effect it has had on my composure in the face of a change of change and upheaval that has taken me. By surprise, there is no rock but the rock of our salvation. No human heart is so hard that he cannot soften it, not even yours. Ask him to sustain you through the ever-changing moments of this life. Ask him to change what you have believed to beyond the power of his grace, that is beyond his power of grace to alter. Our God of infinite sameness is a rock. And when all around is shifting sand, may we cry to him, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge. So in closing, gospel applications, how does your view of the gospel impact your view of politics? Does it impact your view of politics? Have you just thought these are just two separate things, right? I mean, on Sundays, I'm, I'm a Christian, and throughout the week, I, I'm involved in this thing. How does the gospel impact your view of, of politics or maybe party commitment? And then which kingdom sphere are you most committed to? And I would say that, man, if you're, if you're a believer, you should be involved in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is, is growing one soul, one human being at a time. That's how we do this. We go into the kingdom of darkness and we light up the joint. That's, that came out wrong. <laughs> That's a good way to end the message. Where are you at politically, right? And again, it's okay, but can we talk about this with civility? Can, can we do this? Can we have real matter 
things that we uphold and we, we treasure and value. And yeah, can we do that in a way that shows the right kind of manner and have these conversations with people? As always, we'll have communion here tonight uh, at Lower Town. We have the, the bread, which represents the body that's broken uh, of Christ, that's broken for us and for our sins, and the, and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And then as we take these elements, especially tonight after looking at this and looking at how does Jesus reconcile this, how does he reconcile us to himself, he doesn't do it through politics. He does it through himself by the shedding of his blood. That's how he wins. So will you bow with me in prayer as we take these elements and as we worship again with our voices? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are God, and I thank you that you are seated on your throne with all power and authority, that none of this phases you, regardless of which point we're at in human history. You look down and you say, I got this. That you got everything right politically for your son to be born into a world where, where the known world spoke all the same language that they're able to listen to that story and that the transportation was available, that you got this. And God, would we believe that? And yet, would we let your kingdom and your, your son's kingdom-mindedness shape our view of what politics should be and how they should look like and how we can love anybody because Jesus died for everybody? So God, will you bless this time? Will you be honored now as we partake in these elements, as we remember what your son did for us to create unity in this room. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.